All right, well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. And I uh, have you turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 20. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary. We have uh, come to chapter 20, which obviously focuses on the third day after Jesus was crucified, or in other words, Resurrection Sunday. We have already looked at the events that took place that morning and afternoon in detail, and now we come to the events that took place Sunday evening as recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 20. So let's read verses 19 to 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, once again, let's hold off looking at verse 23. Uh, that is a verse the Roman Catholic Church, where I grew up, but uh, that's a verse the Roman Catholic Church uses to teach that right here, Jesus empowered priests to hear confessions and forgive sins. We'll look at that next week. This Let's just focus on verses 21 and 2 this morning uh, as we look at part 2 of a two-part message we started last week entitled, Sent by the Son. And so Jesus said uh, to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. We call this the Great Commission. This Great Commission was given by Jesus to all of his disciples who would ever believe in him down through the centuries, not just to those, of course, in the upper room uh, the night of his resurrection. Uh, much bigger than that. He introduces it here, but much bigger. It encompasses his whole church throughout the church age and, of course, even into the millennial kingdom, excuse me, tribulation period where the gospel will be preached quite often and many will get saved during the tribulation period. Um, possibly, uh, some have said, even maybe more than have gotten saved in all the centuries of the church age combined. I don't know. Spirit's going to be moving quite heavily. But right now we're dealing with the Great Commission. And uh, Matthew records this commission to, uh, that Jesus said to his church. He records it this way in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Mark just puts it simply, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, as we brought this up last week and i'm just reviewing a little bit before we get into today's study but if jesus disciples were going to effectively bring the the gospel into all the world and carry on the ministry jesus began the great commission actually started with jesus the father sent him into the world to share the good news and to make disciples and now he is handing that ministry off as he's about ready to ascend back to his father, he's handing that ministry off to his church. And the question is, how are these guys going to carry on the work Jesus started? Uh, and the only answer to that is, they have to do it in the same power that Jesus did it uh, when he was on the earth, the same power of the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm sure, as we said last time, when Jesus told his disciples he wanted them to take the gospel into all the world, I'm sure they were thinking to themselves at that moment, how are we going to do that? Especially since Jesus just told us he's going away. He's not going to be with us any longer physically. 
He wants us simple Galilean fishers and farmers to go into all the world. We're talking Rome, Alexandria, uh, you know, other places of culture and learning and sophistication, uh, power centers of the of the world. How are we going to do that? How are we going to ever fulfill this commission? And that's why I believe Jesus said a second time in verse 21, peace be with you. Chill out, guys. We would say it that way. Chill out, guys. And he told them that in the context of sending them out to do the Great Commission. They're terrified. Uh, he says, look, I'm not going to send you out alone. And guys, that brings us to our third main point of the little outline we put together for verses 19 to 23. First of all, 19 and 20, Jesus revealed his person to them. Verse 21, Jesus commissioned his preaching to them. And verse 22 and 3, Jesus fulfilled his promise to them. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Look, when I say that Jesus fulfilled his promise to them, I mean the promise that he gave to them in the upper room the night before his crucifixion with regard to the Holy Spirit. Let me start by saying this, okay? I just want you to understand, though, that he wasn't sending them out to do this great work in their own ability, strength, and power. There, God never sends us out to serve him in our own strength. We couldn't do it. And so Jesus, that night before his crucifixion, began to introduce something that we need to talk about this morning, something that not everybody in the body of Christ agrees with. Uh, when I talk about what we're going to learn today, there's a lot of wonderful teachers who absolutely disagree with me. You're sitting in a Calvary Chapel. We believe this. And I believe we have the biblical grounds to back it up. I'll tell you what I mean as we progress this morning. But let me just start by saying this. Jesus spoke of three levels of relationship that the Holy Spirit can have with a person. Now, these are ascending levels. In other words, they build upon each other. Jesus outlined these levels using three different Greek prepositions. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, just so you know. But Jesus outlined these levels using three different Greek prepositions, each one corresponding to one of these levels. The first two come out of John 14. Why don't you turn there? We started looking at this last week. John 14, remember, the context is in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified. They started the evening observing the Passover, and then Jesus moved into one final discourse that ran from chapter uh, chapter 13, actually ran into chapter 14, uh, and actually continued through chapter 17, even though he wasn't teaching them directly, they were standing there while he offered his high priestly prayer to his father. That's an incredible section, John 17, so you can read that on your own. But he's continuing some of the things he began to tell them in chapter 13. Primarily in chapter 13, I believe it's verse 33, he tells them he's going away. And where he's going, they can't follow him. He'll come back to get them eventually. That where he is, they may always be forever with him. But right now, he drops this bombshell at the end of chapter 13. He's going away. They can't follow him. Their hearts are broken. And they're terrified that he's going to leave them alone. And he starts chapter 14 by saying, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I'll paraphrase as he progresses. He says, Look, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I am going away, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. In fact, he says in chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And when I return to the Father is the idea, I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world doesn't know the Holy Spirit. 
doesn't see him, doesn't know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, that last statement in verse 17 contains these two prepositions. The Holy Spirit dwells with you. That's the Greek preposition para. And here's the promise he gave them on that night. He's with you and he shall be in you. That's the Greek preposition en, en. He shall be in you. Then we fast forward three days to Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, where we read in John 20, verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so now, guys, and we're reviewing from last week, so if you weren't here and this subject interests you, and it should, hopefully it does, you can go back and listen to that message. But the Holy Spirit who had been with them has now come inside of them. In other words, they are now at this point New Testament believers. Paul said in Romans 8 9 that if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit in them, they are not Christians. These guys up until this point were saved. They were believers. But in the Old Testament sense, this is where the new covenant actually starts to be put into operation. But up until this time, these guys, his disciples, were saved under the Old Testament covenant, like Moses and David and Jeremiah and so on. But this is a new thing. This is going to pave the way for the birth of a new entity, a new creation of God called the church, the body of Christ. And even though Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah had a tremendous relationship with God, none of them had the Holy Spirit in them. That's something that's unique to the new covenant. And it provides us an entirely new depth of relationship with God. We, they, as much, even angels don't have. Peter said, angels long to look into what it means to have God living inside a person. But I want you to understand that up until this point, they were believers but the, and the Spirit was with them, but now the Spirit comes into them as Jesus promised. Why now? Because now Jesus has died for their sins. The Holy Spirit can't live in a person that before Jesus died for them. But also, not only has Jesus died for them, up until this point, they had not been believers in the resurrection. He told them he was going to rise, but they never really understood what he was really saying, and they never really took it to heart. They were caught by surprise the morning of his resurrection, right? So a few of them came to believe, the ladies who came to prepare his body for burial, the angels announced to them, right? Why are you seeking the dead, living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, right? They get Peter and John. They come back and... Uh, Peter and John eventually become believers in the resurrection too. But for the most part, uh, the vast majority of Jesus' disciples, first of all, don't even know he's raised from the dead yet. And those who hear about this, well, many of them think the women were spouting off idle tales. What are you talking about? You ladies are nuts. You have to be a believer in the resurrection to be a New Testament Christian. We've talked about that. Now they see the risen Lord. Now they're believers, okay? And now the, Jesus is able to breathe uh, into them the Holy Spirit. And at this point, they become New Testament, officially New Testament Christians. Now to see that third Greek preposition mentioned, you have to, uh, we need to look at the promise Jesus gave his disciples, again, which includes all disciples down through history, uh, a promise he made in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascended back to his father. So please turn there. Now he's about ready to return to his father. And he says to them in verse 8, But you shall receive power. That's the Greek word dunamis. We get our English words dynamic and dynamite from that Greek word. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. What? Upon you. That's the preposition in the Greek, epi. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Guys, all Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. 
but not all Christians, and this is where a lot of good teachers disagree with Calvary guys. And it's not just Calvary guys. We're part of the group in the body of Christ that believes uh, this teaching, but we're not the only ones. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them, but not all Christians have the Holy Spirit upon them. The Holy Spirit makes it very clear as he gave us the New Testament to make sure that the prepositions are always used in exactly the way he wants them used. I say that because a lot of Christians will say, and people that don't believe in in the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is what I'm talking about, will say, well, in, with, it's all the same thing. No, upon, no, it's not. If every jot and tittle means something, we would say every cross of the T, dot of the I, means something in Scripture. You're going to tell me a major, you know, an idea like the Spirit is with, in, and upon is something we can all mash together and say, it's all the same thing. No, it's not. No, it's not. This is what the Bible calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He is upon them now. This is a separate and often, listen, subsequent work, often a separate but subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life apart from salvation. Only a believer can have the Holy Spirit upon them. Unbelievers, the Holy Spirit is with them, drawing them to Christ. They open their heart to Christ, he comes in them instantly. But not every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon them. What is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You think, well, okay, well, just what is it? Never heard it before. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is the baptism of power that equips a Christian for service. The word baptism simply, it comes right out of the Greek as a transliteration. Baptizo is the Greek word. Baptize, same word. They didn't do anything with it. They just brought it out of the Greek and, and, and you know, put it into the English. The word baptize means to immerse. Now, be careful. Uh, People have taken me to task. I had one radio listener recently who took me to task because he didn't understand the differences in the way baptism was used in the New Testament, and he thought I was denying the reality of water baptism. I've never denied the reality of water. We we have water baptisms in our church, right? The word simply means to immerse. Here's the thing. You have to read your Bible carefully to find out the context. What is, who is being, well, let me put it this way. First of all, who's doing the immersing? It's different, right? John immersed in water. Jesus immersed in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit immerses people into the body of Christ when they get saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So who's doing the baptizing? Uh, what are they baptizing people into? Jesus said, I've got a baptism that I must be baptized with, and oh, I can't wait till it's fulfilled. Speaking of his death, I want to get, I came to die, I want to get that over with so we can move past the cross to the glory. He was immersed in that mission. That's what the word means, right? So don't read your Bibles in a sloppy way, and every time you see the word baptism, assume water baptism. It's not, it's not the case. You'll misinterpret things, okay? But guys, it's extremely important to note that it's Jesus. Now, I want you to understand this. It's extremely important to note that as our Lord Jesus Christ prepared to start his public ministry, all right, he walked 60 miles. He walked 60 miles from the Galilee up in northern Israel all the way down to the lower Jordan Basin to be baptized by John the Baptist in water in the Jordan River. He obviously believed that that was something very important he needed to do before launching into his public ministry. And I, and I say that, what was I'm not saying the water baptism part by John was not important. It was. But what he was really looking for was what came immediately after John baptized him in water. Turn to Luke 3. We're going to read verses 21 and 2. So verse 21, when all the people were baptized, John had a crowd out there. He was baptizing. 
And so they were all baptized. It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And here the context is in water by John. And while he prayed, the heaven, the heaven was opened. And listen, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove, what? Upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit, of course Luke wrote, but the Holy Spirit was working through Luke, but the Holy Spirit had Luke write the preposition that, that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form upon, upon Jesus. In other words, right here Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you look at what the announcement Gabriel made to Mary, when he announced to Mary she was going to be the mother of the Messiah without any human contact, it would be a virgin birth, Gabriel said the Spirit of God was going to be in the Lord Jesus Christ from the womb. Jesus didn't have to get saved is my point, you know. He was born a believer, son of God. I mean, come on, we know that. When did Jesus get saved? He was always saved. He's God. He was never lost, right? So the Spirit was always in him. So anyone who reads this and goes, well, this is where he got saved. No, no. This is where he was empowered for service. The Spirit was already in him from the womb. Now the Spirit comes upon him, that different Greek preposition. And guys, this baptism is absolutely essential. Jesus felt it was essential for service. We have to understand how essential it is if we're going to serve the Lord. It's absolutely essential for service because it supplies the power necessary for doing the work that God has called any of us to do. Again, these were simple, uneducated men. How in the world were they going to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? I mean, who would listen to these guys? Yeah, we're from Galilee. We're here to tell you about the most important truth that ever came into the world. Galilee was Hicksville. Galilee was the backwoods, okay? It's a lovely place. I've been there many times. Uh, but it was, you know, not a sophisticated place, right? Blue-collar people lived in Galilee, right? How would the world, as they go into, you know, all these places of education and learning and so on, I mean, who, who, how, how, who would listen to these guys? How could they impact their world for Jesus being simple Gal the Galileans that they were? The answer, God was going to endue them with supernatural power from heaven and was going to do the work through them, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is where that third Greek preposition comes into play. John 14, he's with you, he shall be in you. Verse, uh, chapter 20 of John's Gospel, uh, verse 22, he came inside of them. And thirdly, when he comes upon you. Turn to Luke 24. And again, Jesus is about ready to ascend back to his Father in heaven. Luke 24, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Turn to Acts 1. Let's read verses 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let me read verse 8 again, that you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses to me. This is where the service comes in. You're not waiting in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. Then you're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and across the face of the earth. Please understand something. These men knew the gospel. They knew the gospel. They had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They had no doubt heard him preach the gospel thousands of times. I'm convinced they could have preached the gospel in their sleep. And yet Jesus told them they weren't ready to go into all the world and preach it yet. They knew it. They weren't ready to preach it. Not until they were endued with power from on high. 
which again is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so he said in Luke 24, verse 49, I'll paraphrase, so go back to Jerusalem and wait there until you receive this power. Guys, the idea that we no longer need this power, as they did, yeah, they were simple, uneducated guys. Hick, they were hicks. Sorry if some of you came from a small rural town. I'm not, not disparaging you. I'd rather live in some of those small rural towns. But we have people in the body of Christ today, professors, theologians, scholars, who look down on these guys and say, well, they needed special power. They were just dumb, ignorant, hicks, rubes, you know? But we moved past that. Now we've built our Bible colleges and seminaries. We know how to train men and women for the ministry. We don't need any special outpouring of power. We have all we need. Wow. Folks, that is patently false and utterly ridiculous. That anybody claiming to represent Jesus Christ thinks, we can handle it now, Lord. They needed power. We have our education. As long as they have that sheepskin, they are ready to go. Yeah, ready to go back home. Because they're not going to do anything for the Lord because they have something hung, hanging up on the wall of their office. It says some body of men said, You've, you know, you're ready for ministry. Guys, effective ministry isn't a matter of having an MDiv, Masters of Divinity, or a PhD in theology or pastoral ministry. Look, more head knowledge isn't the answer. These disciples had the head knowledge. What they needed now was the power to use it. And so on the day of Pentecost, as the, the disciples were in the upper room praying and waiting as Jesus had commanded them, the Holy Spirit was poured out on these disciples. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's read it for ourselves, Acts 2. And let's read verses 1 through 4. So it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It's not like a hurricane was blown through town, but, you know, no lawn chairs were being thrown around, no barbecues were tipped over, that kind of thing. All right, you get it. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting, verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And guys, from, this, from that point on, the one word that describes these disciples as they serve the Lord, that word is dynamic. Dynamic. They were dynamic and successful because, listen, they were filled with and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. As we, and as we read the book of Acts, we can see how the Holy Spirit directed the activities and the ministries of these early disciples, of the, of, of these, of the early church, uh, because of how successful the church was, right? I mean, all you got to do is look. One example would be Acts 13. You have to turn to it. You can read it on your own, verses 1 to 3. As they were praying and ministering to the Lord, they weren't going to do anything until the Lord told them what to do. The Spirit spoke and said, Separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work I have called them to do. That's what we wanted to hear, Lord. Paul and Barnabas get over here. They laid hands on them, sent them out on the first missionary journey of the church, and it was dynamic. It was dynamic. And then as we continue reading the book of Acts, it records that in the first 30 years of the church's existence, I'll quote Acts 17, 6, they turned their world upside down for Jesus Christ. Well, actually, what they did was they turned it right side up. In the Garden of Eden, it got flipped upside down. Because man was created, uppermost in his being was his spirit, which connected to God, spirit to spirit, and allowed for communion and worship. When sin entered in, Adam and Eve, Everything flipped. Their spirit died, and their nature was flipped upside down. Now the body was uppermost, and the soul lived, or the consciousness lived, to satisfy the body appetites. That's a two-dimensional being. That's what Peter says unbelievers are to this day. 
They don't have a spirit. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God moves in, and your spirit is born again. Now you are a, a triune being, and you can have worship and communion with God once again. So these guys weren't turning the world upside down. They were turning it right side up. Everybody that got saved, now they understood. Now their life was right with God. And think about this. They did all of this without any formal theological training, these disciples who went out, uh, without the help of radio, television, the Internet, or social media. I mean, today, by contrast, we can see how ineffective and unsuccessful the church has been in our generation, for the most part, not every church, obviously. But we can see, for the most part, talking about the body of Christ, let's just keep it to America, how ineffective and unsuccessful the church has been in our generation in impacting the culture for Jesus Christ. With all those tools at our disposal, we have radio, TV, internet, social media. And please don't point to megachurches in an attempt to prove me wrong. Yeah, we have a lot of megachurches, but listen to me. When these Christians went out into their world and preached the gospel, people started getting saved. It made an impact on the culture. Pagan temples started closing down. Those had, that, that uh, made pagan idols for people to worship, their businesses closed down. People weren't buying the stuff anymore. The people that they saved through the gospel, it impacted the culture. Today we have churches in almost every corner, and our culture is as dark as ever. The church is failing somehow. I mean, it's the church of Jesus Christ. People are coming to church, not as much as they used to. People are praying to receive Christ, but their lives aren't really changing for the most part. It's amazing to see this. Why is this? I, I believe this is due to the fact that the church today is depending, listen, more on the ingenuity and creativity of man in developing techniques and programs and methodologies to build the church rather than relying on the power of the Holy Spirit as they did in the first century church. I was talking to one of our pastors up north, and he told me, he's going back a few years, he told me of a church in the area, very close to his church, he's got a Calvary up there, this was another church. How that they wanted to grow their church. Well, that's a good thing, right? We all want to grow, see our churches grow for, for the glory of God. So what they did was the elders decided to take out a loan for $150,000. They didn't have the money. They borrowed $150,000 and gave it, listen, to a secular consulting company to teach them how to build God's church. And they came back with stuff like, be nice, uh, keep things upbeat and positive. People don't want to hear talk about sin and judgment, that kind of thing, right? Shame on them. Jesus said, I will build my church. We have a very simple formula in Acts 2, right? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, so they stayed in the word. Fellowship, breaking of bread, communion, and the Lord added to the church daily those being saved. We do what we're supposed to do, keep it simple, keep it focused on Jesus, the Word of God, communion, prayer, fellowship. He'll do the rest. He'll do the rest. I will build my church, Jesus said. And woe to that church that tries to usurp his ability and build it themselves. Turn to Ephesians 3. It's one of my favorite verses on the subject. Ephesians 3, verse 20, where Paul said, Now to him, and I think that he's got really the Holy Spirit in mind here. Because the Holy Spirit is inside his church, right? Yes, Jesus through the Holy Spirit indwells his church, indwells our hearts. But I, I, in the context, I'm thinking Paul probably has the Holy Spirit really in view. Um, now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, listen, according to the power that works in us. This is how the church is built. This is how the dynamic of the, of the church is spread. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are churches where Jesus is not even in the church. 
Remember Laodicea, Revelation 3? He's knocking to get in. These are liberal churches. So we'll set them aside. But among the churches that Jesus is in, in various degrees, because a lot is not happening for the moment. We're in difficult times. These are dark days. I mean, this is not a time of great revival like we've seen in past histories in our nation. We pray for one again. But a lot of people, instead of just staying with what Jesus told them to do, stay in the word, pray, stay in fellowship, and so on. They, they want to get creative. Is it wrong to get creative? Um, no, as long as you're not, you know, creating the Holy Spirit right out of the church. Look, there's only one power that can build Jesus' church, sustain Jesus' church, and spread Jesus' church. That's the Holy Spirit. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. You've probably heard this quote. Tremendous man of God is with the Lord many years now. He said, and I quote, If the Holy Spirit was removed from the early church, 90% of what they did would have come to a halt. If the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, 10% of what we're doing would come to a halt, end quote. And I think he's right. I really do. Samuel Chadwick, a great one of the greatest Methodist preachers of all time, prayer warrior, tremendous man of God. He said this in the early 1900s, and I'm quoting, the church that multiplies committees and neglects prayer may be fussy, noisy, enterprising, but it labors in vain and spends its strength for naught. It is possible to excel in mechanics and fail in dynamics. There is an abundance of machinery in many churches. What is lacking is power, end quote. Turn to Acts 2. Now, after the Spirit fell, Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, and the church was born, Peter eventually stands up and gives the, preaches the first Spirit-filled sermon of the church age. It was dynamic. It was powerful, right? In fact, it was so powerful, it cut the hearers to the heart with conviction. I mean, there were Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost at this time. One of the three major Jewish feasts of the year. It, those three feasts, Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, drew people from pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world. And this time was no different. So you had hundreds of people right there where the Spirit fell, and now Peter preaches to them. Maybe thousands. In fact, it was thousands. I, I, I take that back. It was thousands that heard that first spirit-filled sermon. The Holy Spirit moved so heavily with conviction, it says they were cut to the heart and said, men and brethren, what must we do? You can read the sermon in Acts 2. Verses 38 and 9, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your children, to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's a very important statement because you have Christians, good teachers, who will tell you the baptism with the Holy Spirit was only for the first century, the apostolic church. Because they needed it. A little scriptures weren't finished being written yet. But by the time we come to the end of the first century, the script, the completed canon is there. Uh, you know, uh, moving into the second century, they didn't need special power. But here Peter says, look, you guys need to get saved. So repent and receive Christ, be baptized in water, and then ask God for this gift of the Holy Spirit, this baptism. Because it's for you, your kids, your grandkids, and down throughout history to as many as the Lord our God will call. Have we all been called? Of course. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've been called by God to be a child of God. You responded. And this promise is for you. It's for you as well. 
the result of Peter's preaching, 3,000 men were converted plus women and young people. I don't know. 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people were converted on that first day of the church's existence. Again, wow. Sunday school and nursery really had a problem that day. I mean, the church hit the ground running, right? Look, it's very important to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, in his humanity, waited 30 years until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then and only then did he begin his, his ministry up in the synagogue of Nazareth. I've been there. And you can read the story out of Luke 4. But as he went up there to preach, he quotes out of Isaiah. This, this is after he was baptized with the, in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. I mean, how absurd is it for us to think that we can do anything for God in the way of ministry without the same power Jesus knew he needed to do the work the Father had given him to do? Oh, but Jesus, I have my degree now. You needed the power. You never went to seminary. I've been there. See the sheepskin on the wall there? I don't have one because I've never been to seminary. I'm just making a point. I mean... Look, I, I believe this is one of the greatest needs in the church today and the single greatest reason the church is so ineffective in the world in doing the work of God. Look, let me just say this to you. Let, let me finish my thought. It's the single greatest problem in why the church is not more successful in doing the work of God because we're trying to do it in our own strength instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, didn't Jesus promise us that against his church the gates of hell would not prevail? Right? Well, then why does it seem that we are losing the culture war to the devil? And again, I believe it's because we're trying to do the work of God in our own strength, ingenuity, and in intelligence, and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to understand that the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on the earth were not done in his power as the second person of the Trinity. He could have, he's got po he had power, but he needed to avail himself to the same power that we would ha have access to. Sure, he's God. He has inherent power. But if he's going to pass along his ministry to his church, they have to have access to the same power he walked in. That's why he, as the second person of the Trinity, didn't use his own power. His whole ministry was done on the earth in the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I know that for sure because there's many verses that talk about that. I'll just read you one. It's Acts 10, verse 38. Peter is talking about this to the family of, of Cornelius. How that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, listen, with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about then doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Guys, that's how Jesus did the work of God uh, when he was on the earth and that's exactly how we need to do the work of God and that is in the same power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you quickly, I mean, I've, I'm not going to read this. We're getting short on time. And I've, I've read it before. It's about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was considered to be one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. He got saved and immediately began a Sunday school. This is in Chicago now. Chicago was his home base. He begins a church. He begins a Sunday school class. This is for adults, but he did teach young ones too. He's going for 15 years. He's in ministry now, but 15 years. He decides to have a series of, of outreach, uh, crusades. I mean, he did often uh, rent a building and have a week's worth of, of uh, preaching and crusades, you know, that kind of thing. He noticed that as he was preaching the first night, there was two women in the first row who were had their heads bowed. They were praying. Well, he, he delighted in that. Praise the Lord. You know, these women are coming. They're praying for the lost. So afterwards, they came up 
introduced themselves. And he, they said to him, you know, we were praying for you tonight. This threw Moody for a little. What? Me? Why, why, why weren't you praying for the people? Because you need power. I need power? I thought I had power. I got a, a, a large Sunday school ministry. I've got a, the largest church in Chicago. What do you mean I need power? No, you need a special anointing for service. The Bible calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We don't believe you've got it. Now, Moody was humble enough to listen to these gals. And he invited them then to come and pray with him. As they shared from Scripture what they were talking about, the Holy Spirit bur began to burden Moody like at no other time in his life. He began to long for this. If this is what I need, because he said, you know, I, I, I saw some conversions up until this point. And I was kind of satisfied, but not a lot was happening. And so he began to pray. And the more he prayed, the more consumed with this idea he became. Then the Chicago fire happened in October of 1871. And a third of the city of Chicago was burned to the ground. In those days, they made buildings out of wood. After the fire, they changed the fire code. You had to uh, only use so much wood in the construction of a building. So a lot of Moody's um, buildings for his ministry were, were, were burned to the ground. So his, his board sent him to New York to try to raise some funds to rebuild. Moody describes that he was in New York on Wall Street of all places. He said, my heart was not in the, in the business of begging. All I could think about was a special anointing for service. And then one day, as he's walking down Wall Street, the Spirit of God fell upon him. And it was incredible. He knew a guy that owned an apartment nearby and asked him if he could spend the afternoon in that apartment. He needed, he needed to get along with God. And out of his own mouth, the Holy Spirit was so heavy upon me, Moody said, with joy and with uh, love, I actually had to ask God, Lord, could you back off a little bit? That's how we would say it. You're going to kill me. I can't handle all this joy and love. I just, the Holy Spirit was just upon him. Now, I've never prayed that prayer. I've never felt like that. The way Moody describes it, after this experience, he went back to Chicago, started preaching like he always said. Same message, nothing new, same truths. But, and now, but now instead of a few getting saved here and there, hundreds were coming to Christ. It was it had to be the power of the Spirit. I wasn't doing anything differently, he said. He said, if you would give me all the money in the world, I would never go back to the place I was before that blessed event. The author said the sermons were not different, what the servant was. The truths were not new, but now they were pungent and penetrating. A few had been converted before, but now converts came by the hundreds. Let me say it again. If Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective in ministry, and if Peter and Paul and guys like D.L. Moody needed this power, why do we think we can do it, serve God, and live the Christian life in general without the power or the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon us? Quickly. You might be thinking, okay, you sold me. How do I receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Listen, how do you receive anything from God? Yes, by faith. Turn to Luke 11 quickly. Jesus told us how. In Luke 11, starting with verse 9. So I say to you, ask, he's talking about prayer, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And then he illustrates, right, this truth. He said, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he, that father, give him a stone? Of course not. If he asks for a fish, will he give his son a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, Will the Father offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, in other words, you have fallen natures. 
if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, let me just say this to you. We'll bring this to a close. Often, the baptism with the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon a Christian's life until there is a brokenness. Many have asked for the baptism, but there is something in their life that they're not dealing with, a sin of some kind. Sometimes there needs to be brokenness before the Lord pours his spirit out upon us. He's not going to bless the proud, the arrogant, and so on, with something that will, uh, will energize their ministry in a way they've never thought possible. I'd like to share with you um, just a little from the life of another man, Dr. Walter Wilson. D.L. Moody, you've heard of. Maybe you've never heard of Dr. Walter Wilson. Uh, this was recorded in a book we offered a few months ago, a book of the quarter, They Found the Secret. It's got 20 biographies of people that were Christians and serving the Lord in frustration and futility until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? The author tells us that Dr. Wilson was converted to Christ on a, on a December night in 1896, and afterward, quoting the author, he became a lover, a lover of the scriptures and became diligent in teaching, preaching, and distributing tracts. Much effort, however, he worked to the point of exhaustion, but no, no fruit. Much effort, however, seemed to produce little results, and no apparent success followed his labors. This ineffectiveness troubled him, and he was told by others not to look for results, but only to be busy at seed sowing. That's what people say when their ministries are not bearing any fruit, and they want to justify it. Don't worry about the fruit. Just keep sowing the seed. This went on for 17 years. Until January 14, 1914, when he heard a message given by Dr. James Gray. Dr. James Gray eventually went on to be the uh, president of Moody Bible Institute. But on this evening, Dr. James Gray gave a message on this topic and uh, the need to surrender our lives fully to the Holy Spirit if God's going to be able to accomplish his work in and through our lives. Upon hearing this message, and I'm quoting the author now, upon hearing this message, Dr. Wilson went home and there laid on the floor of his room, utterly heartbroken over his fruitless life for Jesus, he cried out to the Holy Spirit and said, here's his prayer, My Lord, I have mistreated you all my Christian life. Talking to the Holy Spirit now. I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. When I was about to engage in some work, I beckoned you come and helped me perform my task. I have kept you in the place of a servant. I have sought to use you only as a willing servant to help me in my self-appointed and chosen work. I shall do so no more. Just now I give you this body of mine. From my head to my feet, I give it to you. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes, my lips, my brain, all that I am within and without. I give to you. I hand it over to you uh, for you to live uh, in this body and use it for your pleasure in any way you want. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. You, you may blind the eyes or send me uh, with your message to Tibet. Uh, you may take this body to the Eskimos or send it to a hospital with pneumonia. It is your body from this moment on. Help yourself to it. I thank you, my Lord. I believe you have accepted my prayer. Now, guys, if you hear that and think this guy was bizarre and fanatical, listen to me. It's probably because you have never understood what brokenness really is in the life of one of God's servants. Look, I'm not saying if you think that was a little weird, you can take this body and cause it to be have cancer or pneumonia. All he is saying is, Lord, what, what, if you want to use me in a cancer ward, which means I have to have cancer to minister to people there, that's fine. Whatever you have for me, I am willing to surrender to. Now, folks, there are a lot of carnal Christians who would read something like that and rebuke this guy for being of the devil, that he would ever say something like that. 
You know why? Because carnal Christians are not looking to lay down their lives for Jesus. They're looking for God to bless them. It's all about God building my kingdom on the earth, not about me dying here if need be to build his kingdom. When I read that prayer, I did not think this guy was weird, fanatical. I was broken in my heart because I have never, I have never in my life, I don't believe, have ever prayed a prayer like that and meant it with all my heart. God, I'm your servant. What am I holding on to? Why do I think you serve me? I serve you. And whatever that means going forward, I want that. Because all that matters is my life being yielded to you, serving you, and bringing glory to your name. The author goes on to say that from that day on, Dr. Wilson's life was dramatically and forever changed. He went on to become a tremendous soul winner, all because he came to a place of brokenness and surrender, coupled with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. R.A. Torrey, Reuben A. Torrey, D.L. Moody's right-hand guy. I'll, I'll read this real close. He said this. He was a big proponent of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Moody kept sending him out to teach churches because, you know, Moody couldn't go to every People wanted him to speak all the time. He'd send Tori out often. And he'd always tell Tori, teach on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Teach on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. At one point, Tori says, Moody, I have other things I can teach on. Yeah, that's fine. Teach on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is what they need. Tori said this, and I quote, The lack of this absolute surrender is shutting many out of the blessings today. People turn the keys of almost every closet in their heart over to God, but there is some small closet, often, of which they wish to keep the key for themselves, and the blessing does not come, end quote. Let me end by saying this, asking these questions. These are rhetorical. You bring them before God yourself. What are you holding back from God, if anything? What are you holding back from God and refusing to surrender to him? Is it a relationship? Is it a dream of some kind, a goal? Maybe it's an object. The rich young ruler had money on the throne of his heart. And Jesus said that is um, hindering you from following me. We could say it's hindering God from putting his spirit upon this person and using them for his glory. For him, it was his money. What, what is on the throne of your heart that you, you maybe don't want to relinquish that really is controlling your life for God, hindering? The Lord is inviting you to follow him completely. Will you accept his invitation? Will you accept his invitation? Guys, the only way you will ever experience the fullness of God in your life is if you are broken, surrendered, plugged into a local church and using your gifts for God. Christians that stay home and really don't ever come anymore because they can watch it online, uh, live streaming has become a double sword, a two-edged sword. It helps people that can't get out, but it facilitates laziness and the people that want to hang out in their living rooms, in their pajamas, having a cup of coffee. Is that, is that evil? Uh, no, but don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. You cannot be the Christian God wants you to be if you're isolating yourself. You've got to be, if you're sick, if there's a, a physical issue, fine. That's, I'm not talking to you. I'm just saying, though, if it's laziness that's keeping you away from the body of Christ, where you're not plugged in, you're not using your gifts, you are never going to be the fruitful Christian God wants you to be. Some of you are caregivers. Right now, the season is to take care of a loved one. That's fine. There are extenuating circumstances of what I'm saying. I'm just saying, if you can get to church, and you're not coming to church, and you're not plugged in, and you're not using your gifts, you are hindering what God wants you to do in and through your life. So get plugged in, get in fellowship, and then... Pray that God would baptize you with his Holy Spirit and pray for a fresh 
filling every day, which means you stay close to God in the word, in prayer, in fellowship with his people, and so on. It's no mystery. The Bible is clear. And this is all in the context of going into all the world and preaching the gospel to everyone you come in contact with. You can't give what you don't have. If you're a dry well, you can't give living water to anybody. Get connected to God, get filled with the Spirit, and watch what God will do. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you have put here all that we need to know. Well, knowing it is half the battle, now we have to have the power to use that knowledge. So give us grace, Lord, as a church, as individuals, to uh, report for duty, to get close to you, to stay in the word and in fellowship, that, Lord, you would fill us afresh with your spirit, put your spirit upon us, and then use us for your glory in these last days. Lord, we thank you. We just ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen.